Thank you, Jesus. Well, Lord, we thank you that we can be together today. And Father, we want to ask that you would that you would continue to speak to our hearts, that you would continue to cause us to encounter you. It's, and it's an amazing mystery, Lord, that we can interact with an invisible God, each of us individually, and then also corporately, God. What an extraordinary mystery. What a beautiful reality of your heart. So, Lord, as we read now from the scripture, as we, as we go back and read these letters, Lord, written uh, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so many years ago from the apostles and prophets, Lord, about your goodness and your heart, we ask that you would resonate those things in us, that even by reading your scripture, by virtue of your Holy Spirit, we would encounter you in a new and fresh way today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen? Amen. So today, if I can get this up here, I'm experiencing minor technical difficulties. Uh-oh, don't you love it when you bring it up and it says, time to update. <laughs> Maybe that's a prophetic word for someone here. <laughs> oh, here we go. We have liftoff. Praise God. All right. From Paul, who by God's will is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy, to God's people in Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in union with Christ, may God our Father give you grace and peace. We always give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. When the true message of the good news first came to you, you heard about the hope it offers. So your faith and love are based on what you hope for, which is kept safe for you in heaven. The gospel keeps bringing blessings and is spreading throughout the world, just as it has among you ever since the day you first heard about the grace of God and came to know it as it really is. You learned of God, God's grace from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is Christ's faithful worker on our behalf. He has told us of the love that the Spirit has given you. For this reason, we have always praised, prayed for you ever since we heard about you. We ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, with the wisdom and understanding that his Spirit gives. Then you will be able to live as the Lord wants and will always do what pleases him. Your lives will produce all kinds of good deeds, and you will grow in your knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all this strength which comes from his glorious power so that you may be able to endure everything with patience and with joy give thanks to the Father who has made you fit to have your share of what God has reserved for his people in the kingdom of light. He rescued us from the power of darkness and brought us safe into the kingdom of his dear son by whom we are set free, that is, our sins are forgiven. Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the firstborn son superior to all created things. For through him, God created everything in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers, and authorities. God created the whole universe through him and for him. Christ existed before all things, and in union with him, all things have their proper place. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from death in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. 
for it was by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross, and so brought back to himself all things, both on heaven, on earth, and in heaven. At one time you were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought. But now, by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends in order to bring you holy, pure, and faultless into his presence. You must, of course, continue faithful on a firm and sure foundation and must not allow yourselves to be shaken from the hope you gained when you heard the gospel. It is of this gospel that I, Paul, became a servant this gospel, which has been preached to everybody in the world. Thanks, Carly. Amen. Isn't that a great scripture? You know, one thing about the scripture is it definitely keeps you humble because then you have to preach on something that was already said much better than you probably would say it yourself. <laughs> we have been spending time on this journey, and um, what we started with was this concept coming out of Colossians that in Christ, all things have been reconciled. In Christ, all things have been reconciled. And, and taking uh, verse 19 and 22, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So in Jesus, it was the only way that we could be reconciled. We couldn't follow enough rules to be able to earn our way into heaven. The, the, the gospel is very unique. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very unique. Every belief system is a set of rules that one must follow in order to either attain uh, peace or attain righteousness or attain entry into heaven. There's a set of rules that one must follow in order to be reconciled into heaven, in order to graduate into the next, uh, the, you know, the, the next life as it were. Jesus comes and says, I am the eternal life, and the only way to the Father is through me. So he offers a very unique uh, proposition. He says, there isn't a different way. I am the only way. But we know that Jesus presented it this way. He said, all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. No one is righteous, not one. We know the word says this. And so Jesus comes and says, look, there's no way that any of you, anyone, anyone who's ever been living, is living up enough following enough rules, establishing enough righteousness in order to gain entry and reconciliation back to the Father on your own because everyone has sinned. And my Father is holy. He says, however, here's what I'm going to do. And he shows us through the cross that he will take the punishment that we all deserve. And not just, I mean, yes, absolutely, individually, you and I have sinned and God has taken that punishment. Jesus Christ, that's what it's talking about here where he says, that in him he has reconciled all things to himself, and he says, whether on earth or heaven, he made peace through the blood of his cross. 
Now, why is this important for us as followers of Christ? It's important for us because it consistently brings us back to understand that the only way that we are able to stand and be in relationship with God is not through our good works. It's not that we can follow enough good rules, but it's that Jesus Christ himself fulfilled all righteousness, having followed all the rules himself, but then he, the innocent, died for us, the guilty. And so that's the premise of our entry. You see, the gospel presents something very unique. It causes us all to have to be ultimately, ridiculously grateful and extraordinarily humble. Because none of us can, can stand before anyone else, and definitely not God, and say, look, I've done everything perfectly well, I've followed all of your rules, and now you owe me eternal life. You see, the law, as was laid out by Moses, spoke of what it would be to be holy. But the law only had the power to show us all that we're not. Right? I mean, it's like, here's the standard, and we go, oh, oh, good, there's a standard, Uh uh-oh, there's a standard. And then we very quickly learned that we were not good at keeping up to that standard. Jesus shows up and he summarizes all the law and the prophets when he's asked and he says this. All of the law and the prophets is summarized in this statement. Love God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. And before he leaves, Jesus says, I give you one more new commandment. And that is this. Love your neighbor as much as I love them. That's a whole nother standard, isn't it? Some of us are loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, and it's not fun for them or us, right? <laughs> Come on, some of us are just like always browbeating ourselves, and we have no problem browbeating our neighbor. Very critical of ourselves, very critical of our neighbor. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to love them as I love them. And what did Jesus do? He came, fulfilled complete goodness and love, and then he himself died the death that we deserve, paid the price that we needed to have paid so that we could live the life that he deserves and inherit the things that he is to inherit. Is that a good deal? Now, this isn't a fairy tale. Jesus is a historical fact. He was witnessed in history. Men and women saw him after he died and rose again, and they said, this is the Christ. And if you remember, when the gospel began to spread to different cities, then people would say, "Uh uh-oh, those people, those followers of Christ that have turned the world upside down, now they've showed up here. What's going to happen? Why was this such a huge and important thing for us? Because Christ, in Christ, all things were being reconciled. And let uh, let me just catch you up on where we are. Uh, Here we go. So the first thing, we all need reconciliation. And where there's a break in relationship, a break in relationship with God or others, it creates poverty. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? You see, every aspect of poverty actually comes, excuse me, from a break in relationship. First with God, then with our neighbor. And so every single one of us, we're experiencing poverty in whether it, well, let me just go through the list. We have to be reconciled with God, with ourself, with others, 
And finally, with creation. If you look at every situation in the earth right now, and you see poverty, maybe it's material poverty. Material poverty can be for a few different reasons, but if you, if you trace it back, you're going to find that material poverty is coming from a breach in relationship someone, somewhere here. If I don't know that God loves me, it gives me an interesting psychological issue, doesn't it? Because then suddenly, maybe there isn't a God in my, in my understanding. Maybe, maybe there is no God, or maybe there is a God, but he's an angry, judgmental God that just is waiting to drop the hammer on me. And if my picture of God is that, it's going to cause me to live in a different way than if I understand that he's a good father, the kind of father that, that reconciled us back to himself through his son. You see that? And so the way that I live, if my relationship with God is broken, is going to create a relational poverty with him. And you know what? What we believe, you guys, shapes the way that we live, doesn't it? It shapes what we do. It shapes how we feel. It shapes how we work. It shapes how we, how we work with others. If I believe that God is just waiting to judge me and drop the hammer upon me, then I'm going to treat my neighbor a lot the same way, and I'm going to be somebody who's pretty hard to work with. You idiot, how many times do I have to tell you how to do this? Oh, it's just your job. Just, you know, here's a clue. Do your job. Well, that's coming right out of my heart if I'm that kind of a person. And why would my heart think that? Because my heart either, one, belong, believes that it's all up to me, and so I need to hurry up and get all of you idiots to act right so that the world can be a safe place, because quite honestly, I'm scared to death, and I don't want you guys driving. <laughs> right? Where is that coming from? It's coming because I don't know that I have a good dad. I don't know that, number one, I might not even know he's a dad. I mean, think about some of these songs that we sing. They're coming out of this idea of a God that actually wants to love us. They're coming out of the scriptures where he calls us his bride, whom he loves and delights in. They're coming out of Zephaniah where he says that I dance over you and I delight in you and I dance over you with singing. Well, that, when, you, when, when, you have that, uh, when you have been reconciled back to a God who's like that, then those kinds of songs start to make sense a little bit. Now, that's not the only part of him because he's also a really, really good father, which means that we're in the family business together. And what is that business? Well, he created us to be a blessing. Did you know when he planted us in the Garden of Eden, do you know what the word Eden means? Pleasure. He planted Adam and Eve in the garden of pleasure. And you know what he told them? Be fruitful and multiply and cultivate this garden. I want you to be a blessing and I want you to multiply blessing throughout all of the earth. I want you to cultivate the garden of pleasure. How beautiful is that? So when we're reconciled to who he actually is, and there are, there are many more facets I don't have time to go into more of the character of God, but I'm telling you, it's all good. So we're reconciled back with him, but when we're broken from him, it creates poverty. The kingdom of heaven, he says, there's always more than enough. Your father knows what you need before you even ask for it. If we're broken from that, we're going to adhere to a completely different economic situation, which means, which means there's never enough, actually. There's scarcity. And if you have, it probably means I have not. 
Do you see how even our economic picture comes from whether or not he's a good God? Has anyone ever told you that following God is simple? It might be, well, I don't know. I don't know if simple is the right word. He loves us. It's understandable. But quite frankly, in some ways, it means that you get to be more creative and apply his love in more complex ways than you may have ever thought before. It doesn't make you turn your brain off. It makes you turn your brain on because you go, if he's a good dad, what might that mean for how I would love my neighbor? If he's a good God, what might that mean in how I would apply that to how I run my business, how we would run our schools, how we would run our cities. You see that? You see, as we read last time, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a list of rules for how we would live. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that in him we've been reconciled back to the Father, and it's a lens through which we see everything. And we must then apply that in every one of our lives. And as we do that, we bring reconciliation. And you know what we do? We end up actually obliterating poverty. Because suddenly I actually love my neighbor, literally the geographical one right next door, as well as the one that I meet later at Walmart or wherever I shop. And so we're constantly applying this and we're consistently allowing the gospel to inform our hearts and our minds so that we can love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourself. And as we do that, we are reconciled with God. We're reconciled with ourself. We understand that he accepts us. That's a huge deal. I talked about this um, a few weeks ago. But how many of us, we, we, we literally spend most of our time criticizing ourselves and reminding ourselves how far we've fallen short. Now, as followers of Christ, we know that we do fall short. But we know that we can come to him because he says, if you sin, confess your sins one to another, and your father will forgive you. Did you guys know that forgiveness is only for the guilty? This is good news. This is not a trick question. You can't be forgiven unless you're actually guilty. And we're all guilty. Does that mean that we're lowering the standard and saying, well, there are no standards? No, in fact, it actually raises the standard even higher when I see the goodness of God. The scripture says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When I see the goodness of God, I'm actually struck by how this completely holy completely righteous, completely just, wonderful Father has reconciled each of us back to himself, not by lowering the standard and saying, oh, well, now it's just easy. Just do whatever you want because Jesus died. No, 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 no. He said, listen, it is not my desire that any should perish, but that all should be saved. For I so love the world that I gave my only son that whoever believes in me, believes in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. And later it says, and this is everlasting life, that you know me. 
But you see, it wasn't for free. He didn't just come in and say, hey, you know what? It's all good. I used to be mad, and now I'm not anymore. I just sort of progressed a little bit. And so I just sort of lowered the standard in it. I just, I'm a lovey God. I'm a lovey God, so you can do whatever you want, and we'll just kind of figure it out. We'll just figure it out. No, he said, I'm a holy God, and my worshipers must worship me in spirit and truth, but I don't desire that you should perish because I love justice and I love mercy. And in the scripture, in fact, it says they've kissed. And in Christ, they have on that cross, justice and mercy have kissed. Justice and mercy have come together where God allowed himself, Jesus Christ, to come and bear the brunt so that every rape, every lie, every selfish thought, every theft, every deifying of our own selves, every proud moment, every selfish thing that is deserving of punishment, the punishment was actually given. The wrath of God towards every unjust thing came down upon God himself. There's a, there's a parable of a, of a king and uh, I think you guys have heard this one, but the king, he, he just, there's a terrible problem with adultery in his kingdom. Everyone's committing adultery, and the king says, this is a terrible thing. And so he, he passes a law, and he says, anyone caught in adultery will have both of their eyes uh, burned with a red-hot poker. will poke out both their eyes, they'll be blind, and then that way they won't be able to find their way to go, go commit adultery anymore. So they pass the law. And so within a couple of days, a man is brought before the king and, and he's got a bag over his head and, and it's actually the first person to come. And, the, and they bring the man in and, and they say, king, oh king, you passed this law and we found this man in the very act. And so we've brought him to you. He was committing adultery. And so what then shall we do? And, uh, and so they pull the bag off of the, off of the young man's head and it's the king's own son. And the king, being a righteous king, who for good reason said, do not be committing adultery in my kingdom, they, they're waiting to see what he's going to do. Will he extend mercy to his son who has, who has clearly broken this law? Or will he, will, he create, will he go ahead and execute justice? Because if he, if, he, if he just extends mercy, well, then that's just favoritism. That's just, well, it's his son. And then what is he going to do? Lower the standard? Commit all the adultery you want. Never mind, I changed my mind. So then he's extending mercy, but he's not extending justice, right? So how then will this king move forward? And so the king says, so the king takes the, the poker and he, he puts it into the fire and with tears in his eyes, he puts it into one of his son's eyes and the smell, you know, the acrid smell of, of flesh burning and the, the son shrieks and everyone's like, oh my gosh, he is a just king. He clearly is committed to justice and the tears are running down his face, and the, the son, he doesn't even beg for mercy. He knows what he's done. But then at that point, the king puts the poker back into the fire then to heat it back up. And then the king steps down, and he hands the poker to the son, and he says, here, take mine. And so in that moment, the king was able, see, he exercised mercy and justice. You see that? Well, God, in an even greater way, did not lower the standard 
of righteousness for each of us because we must love him. He brings objective truth. You see, it's not just a standard that can be lowered. If we just lowered the standard and said there is no holiness, there is no truth, there is no right, there is no wrong, well, then we're left with what? Every man and woman can just do whatever's right in their own eyes, right? But we know there is a standard. And so this beautiful father can't just lower the standard and say, you know what, never mind. There is no good. There is no bad. There is no right. There is no wrong because I love mercy and I don't want to have to bring justice to anything. So he can't just extend mercy and change the standard. So how must we do that? How must that then be reconciled so that there's room for us to both approach him as completely holy and just? Well, that's how he did it. Jesus Christ, who had no sin, went to the cross on behalf of all of us and on behalf of every wicked thing that has ever been done on this earth and will ever be. And in that way, God himself, as it were, blinded his own eye to fulfill justice and extend mercy at the same time. But do you see how it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't cheap grace. It wasn't a lowering of the standard. Are you guys with me? Are you catching this? Now, the reason why this is so vital is because if we misunderstand how God fulfilled both mercy and justice at the same time, we will relate with him as though we're not reconciled. We will either try to earn our way. It's like, oh, thank you. I prayed a prayer. I believed in your son. Um, and now I'm just going to work really, really hard to be a really good person and fulfill the laws. And, and, and be basically, we kind of swing over to legalism. If I can just be good enough, then I won't make God mad. And we're, miss, we're missing the whole point. You see, we don't want to be like the Father so that we can become sons and daughters. We want to be like the Father because he's made us sons and daughters. You see, it's not something that we can earn. It's something that he earned. It's something we aspire to do because he is that good and we're made in his image and he's made it possible. We don't do it so that it's possible that he loves us. He loves us and therefore it's possible. Do you see the difference? And he didn't lower the standard. The standard is still love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and in fact, love them as much as I do. And if you sin against them, go to them and make it right. Make amends. But I will not disown you because Jesus Christ actually took every bit of punishment that will ever be executed. And in the final day of judgment, for those of you that are wondering, in that final day, it, it's really the, it's the wrong word. Judgment is actually kind of the wrong word. In that final restoration day, that day of reckoning, he will simply, when we come to him, those of us who have rejected him, he will not reject you. There will be two things that are said in that day. Either we will finally see him as he is and say, Lord, your will be done. You wanted that we would love you and receive your love. You gave us that through Jesus Christ. And I say, I'm yours. I found you to be good. I accept this thing that you've done, this reconciliation. Your will be done. Let's live together forever in eternity. I humbly accept you, God. Or with tears in his eyes, 
he will turn to those of us that do not want him, that are rejecting him, and he will say, thy will be done. But he doesn't send anyone to hell. He doesn't send anyone to be eternally separated from him. That was never his desire. Only we can reject him. He will not reject us. You see that? We will either say to him today and always, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Or on that day, maybe it's today, hopefully it's not always, he will be saying to us, thy will be done. I did it again. I want to show you guys something. I want to show you something that happened when followers of Christ, we're going to be able to do this. We're going to get this done. When followers of Christ come together. This is a quote from Dallas Willard. When serious followers of Jesus in any particular city become aware of one another and intentional about connecting and learning from one another what they are learning from Jesus, you will have the makings of authentic spiritual awakening. Now, I want to show you something, and then, Amy, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to show them this clip here in just a sec. Romans 8, 19 and 22 says this, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealings of the sons of God and its sons and daughters, okay? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. And what is he talking about? What he's saying is, you guys remember Adam and Eve are in the garden, the garden of pleasure, garden of Eden. And he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I've given you authority over everything. Cultivate this garden. Extend my heart. Adam and Eve trade their authority over the earth to Satan. He comes and tricks them. He lies to him. He says, God's not a good God. He just wants to be more powerful than you and know stuff that you don't. So you should eat from the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You guys are familiar with this story? And they do it. Now, in that moment, and isn't it amazing? Isn't it just like God? You know, the devil didn't plant the tree in the garden. God did. The reason why God planted that tree in the garden is because he always gives us a choice to choose him or to choose our own lordship. Now, that's very important because if you truly are someone who is love, you can't make people do stuff. Love has to be able to choose you. And so he put that in there. In that time, and Jesus said to them at that time, he said, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will die. In that day, death will enter into this situation. They were already eternal creatures. But also, when they ate of the tree, and you guys can look at this story in Genesis, when they ate of the tree, it says this. God speaks and he says, because of this, Adam, the earth, creation, is cursed because of you. And now thorns and thistles will, will grow up, and now you're going to have to earn this, your, your, your bread by the sweat of your brow. Okay? So there's the curse. I'm trying to cover a lot right now. Then Jesus comes, and as we just saw on the cross, took the curse, broke the curse, and released heaven. 
And now we're all ministers of reconciliation. And where there's reconciliation, what happens to poverty? How many of you think poverty is God's idea? No. Blessing begins to come and be released where once there was poverty because we've been reconciled to the Father, to ourselves, to each other, and in finality, we even bring reconciliation into creation itself, into the earth itself. Jesus told us to pray this. This is his prayer, and then I want to show you something, and you'll just have to, you'll just have to look at it yourself, and you're going to like it. Uh, they asked Jesus how to pray, and he says this. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, which means holy. Your kingdom come, and your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, which is amazing because the, the curse made it hard to get your daily bread because of thorns and thistles and whatnot. Jesus is saying, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and give us this day our daily bread. You guys catching this? You're gonna, it's going to hit you later. And forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What's the point of this? Jesus forgave our sins, broke the curse through the blood of Jesus, and now wants us <coughs> excuse me, to extend the kingdom of heaven in all four of those areas. We get to relate with him. We get to relate with ourselves, We get to relate with our neighbor. And we get to see actual heaven invade geographic areas to where we actually see kingdom activity in the natural creation. I want to show you a testimony. This is about 12 minutes long. This happened in 1999 and continues to this day. Amalunga was an extremely poor village. This was a community in total poverty and alcohol addiction. Violence, ignorance, witchcraft, the occult, idol worshiping. The few kilometers will be entering the town of Almalonga. The city's 20-some thousand inhabitants have made a conscious choice to sever the continuum with ancestral spirit worship. As a consequence, Almalonga is today one of the cleanest, most prosperous towns in all of Guatemala. It's a city of churches. Many cite Almalonga as a world-class example of community transformation. It may very well be. As many as 8 out of 10 residents now consider themselves born-again Christians. But it hasn't always been like this. Just 20 years ago, Almalonga was a dark and dangerous place. Suffered from poverty, violence, ignorance, and besides that, alcohol was the main problem. If you would go to Almalonga 20 years ago in the morning, 7 a.m., and walk the streets of Almalonga, you would have encountered many, many men just lying on the street because they were totally drunk. We had many jails because there were so many problems. Chief of Police Donato Santiago recalls that people were always fighting. Officials built four jails, but even they couldn't contain the problem. Overflow prisoners were routinely bused to a nearby city. Domestic violence was especially pronounced. 
I talked to a woman who said that her husband would, uh, if she, if he didn't like the meal, that uh, she, she would uh, be beaten and just kicked out of the home. Pastor Mariano Rescaje, one of the key leaders of Al Malonga's spiritual turnaround, has similar memories. I was raised in misery. My father sometimes drank for 40 to 50 straight days. We never had a big meal, only a little tortilla with a small glass of coffee. My parents spent what little money they had on alcohol. In an effort to ease their suffering, many townspeople made pacts with folk deities like Pascual Bailon, the Lord of Death, and Mashimon, a powerful patron saint. Uh, Mashimon, he was the most important idol in Almolonga. When the Spaniards came to Guatemala 500 years ago, uh, they found that the indigenous people, they, they were willing to, to negotiate certain things. But there was one thing they were not willing to, to do any deal about, and that was Mashimon. That was too important an idol for them. This syncretism created a powerful stronghold. Although Mashimon took on the form of a wooden mannequin, the spirit behind the idol held tenacious power over the people of Almolonga. It's just a wooden mask, but it's very powerful, a terrible stronghold that binds people. During these dark days, the gospel did not fare well. Outside evangelists were commonly chased away with sticks or rocks, while small local house churches were also stoned. Evangelical Christians were a despised minority. On one occasion, six men shoved a gun barrel down Mariano's throat. As they began to pull the trigger, he silently petitioned the Lord for protection. When the hammer fell, nothing happened. Delivered from death, Pastor Riscaje called his small flock into prayer. It was time to break the stranglehold of violence, superstition, and poverty. As the intercessors lifted their petitions heavenward, they were filled with a supernatural faith. We told the Lord, it is not possible that we could be so insignificant when your word says we are heads and not tails. We kept fasting three or four days a week, and every Saturday we held a prayer vigil. And that was what I think opened the door. People started to be delivered, men started to be saved and come to church. It was a tremendous, tremendous place. A revival, I would call it. And then after uh, many signs and wonders started taking place and, and uh, a lot of mass deliverances from demonic oppression, um, churches started growing. Is it true today that when people pray the skies will break Kings and queens will shake Yes, it's true And I believe it One dramatic healing involved a woman named Teresa. A botched medical procedure had led to the onset of gangrene. Her internal organs were literally rotting. I was in a lot of pain, so much that I couldn't walk. My whole body was paralyzed and I couldn't even eat or talk. She was very sick and her condition got worse with every passing day. There was nothing we could do, so we decided to arrange her funeral because there was no hope for her. 
The house was filled with family members and neighbors had gathered outside. Everyone thought she was dying. The smell of death was everywhere. They called me to arrange the funeral, and on the way there, the Lord told me to pray for her. So I just went up to her bed and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And she rose up instantly with no sickness in her body. I felt a warmth, and I saw a bright light above me. Then I opened my eyes, and I saw the pastor. I rejoice before the Lord for my healing, and I give thanks to God for my life. After they saw the miracle, my mother and all my brothers and sisters were converted. With such dramatic testimonies, hundreds began giving their hearts to Christ. When people saw that the gospel started changing lives, they started taking note. People started uh, um, becoming more and more attracted to the gospel because they saw the, the transformation in individual lives. Now there are more than two dozen evangelical churches in Almalonga, a town of just 19,000. Mariano Riscaje's El Calvario Church seats 1,200 and is nearly always packed. But the Holy Spirit's presence has not been measured by church growth alone. A walk through Almalonga's bustling commercial district reveals the impact of the revival's social transformation. Streets and buildings are named after biblical places. If foreigners find this public display of faith extraordinary, Mariano sees it as perfectly natural. How can you say that you love God if you don't show it? Didn't Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Where once Almalonga was peppered with bars or cantinas, 36 in all, now there are only three. And as the drinking stopped, so did the violence. For 20 years, the town's crime rate has declined steadily. In 1994, the last of Almalonga's four jails closed. The remodeled building is now called the Hall of Honor. For Police Chief Santiago, these are the good times. You don't have any jails in town now? Because you don't need them? No, because there's no people that, that do trouble. <laughs> no, not like before. Even the town's agricultural base has come to life. For years, crop yields around Almalonga suffered from a combination of arid land and poor work habits. But as the people have turned to God, they have seen a remarkable transformation of their land. And Almolonga became a fertile valley. It is so fertile, the, the land is so, so good. They produce the best vegetables. They get as many as three harvests per year. They sell their vegetables to Guatemala, south of Mexico, and El Salvador. Before the spiritual turnaround, growers were exporting four truckloads of produce a month. Now they leave town 40 times a week. Nicknamed America's Vegetable Garden, Al Malonga's produce is of biblical proportions. You have to see them to believe. A bit is four and a half pounds. A carrot is this size. It is, it is just unbelievable. It... It's bigger than my It's not big. It's the green grocer <laughs> Intrigued by the dimensions of these vegetables and the town's 1,000% increase in agricultural productivity, 
Researchers from the U.S. and other foreign countries have come to Al Malanga to learn their secret. But the answer is not what they expected. The, the wisdom that God gave the farmers in Al Malanga produced better crops than uh, the scientific methods yielded. And um, uh, the farmers constantly give the glory to the Lord for uh, producing the, the bountiful harvest. Before, when we harvested the radish, it would take up to 60 days. But when God came into town, it only took 40. And now, quite often, it only takes 25 days to harvest. You can see a parallel between the people's faith and improving soil. At the same time people started believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the vegetables started growing. Once people were set free, they started working. Once they began to work, they gained financially. They started working the land better, and the land started producing better. Farmers pay cash for large Mercedes trucks and then emblazon them with Christian phrases. It is, it is wonderful, and it is the, the result of the gospel transforming the community. Idolatry and superstition have fled, leaving behind a people dedicated to fervent worship and honest labor. Traditional stoicism has given way to heartfelt exuberance. Or what you have is 20 uh, Protestant churches, very active, very militant, and uh, very involved in praise, worship, deliverance, and so on and so forth. Despite their success, believers in Alma Longa have no intention of letting up. Many fast three times a week and continue to assault the forces of darkness through prayer and evangelism. As neighboring towns celebrate the Day of the Dead, the people of Alma Longa turn out in mass to honor the living God. The town's born-again mayor welcomed a crowd of almost 15,000 into the market square. They gathered to pray for a continued expansion of the gospel in their valley and around the world. The price we pay for this is holiness and consecration. Prayer and fasting gives us victories over principalities. It wasn't a theological preparation. It was simply throwing ourselves to the Lord. I think in many cases when we talk about community transformation, we have a battle with unbelief. Is our God and is the gospel powerful enough to truly impact our community? Al Malanga teaches us yes. You had a community given to idolatry, witchcraft, alcoholism, disruptive families, and now you have a community transformed. And that's a good picture to us that yes, God can do it there and he can do it in my community. God has lifted us and we need to take advantage of this opportunity. We are a generation that God is going to use in the transformation, not only of our community, but the whole world. It is a beautiful spectacle to go and see the, the, the effect of the gospel, because you, you actually can see it. And that's what we want for our communities, for our cities and for our nations. Is that exciting? Isn't God good? Man, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I think that speaks for itself. There are some extraordinary things happening in our valley. 
and I want to talk to you more about that. There is a concerted prayer effort emerging. Uh, we've already got 11 churches on board who are going to be committing. We're one of them, but committing to providing 24-hour prayer. Um, each church will take one day a month, and we're going to pray together, and I've got a lot of things to tell you about that, but it's going to be amazing. Um, but what's really cool is we haven't even finished putting the plan together, but everybody we're talking to is like, I'm in, I'm in. And some of the people that are in are like, you know, First Baptist in Eugene, um, New Hope Church in Eugene, Willamette Christian Center, Christ Center, um, and the list goes on. Um, so this is exciting, isn't it? What might happen if followers of Christ began to be intentional about seeking the Lord together and praying that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done in families? What might happen if we asked that his kingdom would come and his will would be done in our individual lives? What might happen if his kingdom were to come and his will to be, were to be done in our businesses and in our schools? What might happen? Are you guys getting excited? 